Well, good morning. Man, it is great to see you guys here, and it's also, yeah, welcome. Just love, I mean, it's, uh, it's a gift. It's a gift to be able to get together. It's a gift to be able to connect virtually, and we're going to keep doing this. We'll figure it out as we go. Our amazing team here is uh, getting all the logistics figured out. I mean, it's, 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 it's awesome to be able to get together and do just this. And it's been a while since I've seen you, and I wanted to let you know, one thing that's happened since you last saw me is I got a Lamborghini. I finally got one. I've been wanting to get one for a while. Now, the Lamborghini that I got had to fit my budget. As a result, it's a little smaller. It's gonna be tough headroom-wise for me. But there's also, let's, let's just say for a minute that you could do some little magic trick, and all of a sudden, this becomes a full-sized, real Lamborghini. Would you want that? Well, some people would, some people wouldn't. But I'm telling you, if it would have to be, if it were an exact replica, there's a little unique detail here. This one doesn't have an engine. Would you still take it? And some people say, oh, absolutely. I, I'd take it. I'd love to for it to sit in my driveway and impress my neighbors. And every now and then, I'd go out and listen to the sound system. Uh, all good until you actually needed to go somewhere. Now, I, I know this is part of that gift I've got of clarifying the obvious, but the reason that cars were invented was to carry people from point A to point B. So what if I were to put another car in your driveway, a 1970 Chevrolet Nova SS, and tell you, okay, listen, the difference between these two, they both look like normal cars on the outside, but the difference with this one that we've enlarged and put in your driveway is it actually has an engine. Now, some people are far more impressed by the looks and the prestige of this, but it, when, when it comes to having that car do what it was meant to do, let's get one that might be a little less impressive on the outside, but equipped on the inside to do what cars are made to do. Now take the parallel of what you're starting to see here to us as human beings. All humans look the same basically on this outside. These two cars look the same in the sense that they both have four wheels and some doors and a steering wheel, kind of the basics. Now, you can do the accoutrements with cars and the accessories and the colors and all of that. Same is true with human beings. And you really can't tell looking on the outside what's going on with a human being specifically in this area. You know, Samuel talks about God saying to, uh, regarding David, men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? Heart. He looks under the hood. So you could look at every human being on this planet, and you can't tell what's under the hood, but God can. What we're going to look at this morning is what he puts under the hood. You see, what's under the hood is the engine. The engine is what enables me to do what a human being is made to do. And the beauty of the gospel is not that I was made religious. The beauty of the gospel is I've been restored. I've been equipped. I have been given that which I need to fulfill the original purpose that I'm made for as a human being. Doing my vocation, my recreation, my relationships, it's all there. This morning, we're going to talk about what that engine is. First, let me set the stage. We're in this series. We're calling it Awaken. We're going through John's gospel. The gospel awakens us to who we're meant to be as human beings. 
And at the centerpiece of John's Gospel is John chapter 10, verse 10, that you've got memorized hopefully by now, where Jesus gives his mission statement. And he says, his mission statement was not to start a religion. He says, a thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. It's something very similar to what we're talking about in this analogy. In the garden, with our rebellion, something died in us. We became dead in our trespasses and sins. And what was robbed of us is that which would enable us to fulfill the original purpose that we're made for. Jesus says, I've come to restore that. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. It's not happy clappy. It's not self-improvement. It's the life of God, the Zoe life of God. We've talked about what that life of the gospel looks like, what that fully alive looks like. We've looked at the ABCs of the gospel and so forth. This morning, we're going to be looking at how it happens. If you've got your Bible, I want you to be ready to turn to John chapter 16. If you want to get a head start, you can go there. But let me give you a couple of verses from John and another from Corinthians that will set the stage of where this life comes from. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus makes a very unequivocal statement. He says, okay, I've come that you might have life, have it to the full. Here's where the life comes from. The Spirit gives life. Do you know what he means by that? He means the Spirit gives life. You know what the Greek means there? It means the Spirit gives life. If I'm going to have the life of the gospel, it's going to be intimately, intricately woven into the life of the Spirit. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life. So this whole connection of the Spirit and life, you see it all throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, not that we're competent in ourselves. Think here, this Lamborghini is not competent. It might be competent to impress maybe some car lovers. It's not competent to do what a car is meant to do. And if you've got a, an emergency of some sort and you need transportation, this ain't going to do it. This is not competent. Paul is saying, but our competence comes from God. And he's made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. What he's referring to there is the letter being that religiosity pathway, the letter, the rules, the regulations. Are there rules? Of course. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And you've heard me say before, it's not the rules that make us followers of Jesus. And if the rules are from Scripture, great. But so often we add other things to it. That's some of what Paul's referring to is people thinking, okay, I can be religious and get God's acceptance, which we'll talk about in a bit. But he says, for the letter kills. It suffocates. That religious legalism just crushes us. He says, but guys, let me tell you something. The Spirit gives life. I'll give you one more. John chapter 7. Jesus was proclaiming. We looked at this a number of weeks ago. On the last and greatest day of the festival, He stood and He said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to Me and drink. And whoever believes in Me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, He meant the Spirit. He says, where does that river of living water, where's that life that I've promised you come from? It's through the Spirit. Though upon those who believed in Him were later to receive. And up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What he's referring to there is what we know now in church history as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Jesus, he was crucified, 
was buried, rose again on the third day. Forty days He taught the disciples. Then He ascended to the Father and was glorified. And He said, when I go, the Holy Spirit will come. So on Pentecost, all of these human beings that had no engine were now given one. Those who trusted in Him. So that's the background of where the Holy Spirit plays into the spectrum of who we are as His people. The Holy Spirit is not a gas. So, hey, I got, part of the, I got more of the Holy Spirit than you. you know? And where that comes from is people misunderstanding the biblical exhortation to be filled with the Spirit. So I guess people, the people say, well, I guess that means you can have a quarter tank, a half tank, three quarters of a tank. No, the Holy Spirit is person. He's the third person of the Trinity. We don't refer to Him as it. But as He, as Him, pronoun. The moment that I trust Christ, the same thing happens to me that happened to them on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. What took place on the day of Pentecost is something that had not occurred in blanket form since the garden before the fall. Human beings, they had been looking normal on the outside, but on the inside they did not have what was necessary to enable them to be fully human to the glory of God. So the Spirit came. So when I trust Christ, when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit takes residence up within you. It's called being baptized by the Spirit. Now there are a lot of different you know, deviations from that. And you'll hear people say, well, I, you know what, I, um, I'm praying that you get more of the Spirit and really get baptized. That's borderline heresy, if not heresy outright. Because the Spirit is a person, not a gas, when you trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit took up residence. Some people feel that. Some people doesn't feel a whole lot different. But there is a power. There's a supernatural transformation that takes place under the hood when I trust Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have just as much of the Holy Spirit as you do if you've, trust, if you've trusted Christ. Now what will be the difference between you two is the degree to which you're moving according to the Spirit. And that's, that's growing. That's growing in Jesus when we are learning to submit before the Holy Spirit and to say, Spirit, lead me today. Holy Spirit, would You control me? Uh, Holy Spirit, I don't want to grieve You. That's another exhortation. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit's residing within me, but I'm not looking any different from somebody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We're both sitting in the driveway, and if that's the case, and you'll have unbelievers looking at other unbelievers, and then they look at believers and they say, why would I want Jesus? This person never leaves the driveway either. Might as well spend our time getting all the accoutrements set. And so it's understanding that the Holy Spirit's centrality in this whole notion of being fully alive. With that setting the stage, let's now go to the Upper Room Discourse. You turned to John chapter 16, and we've been looking at this Upper Room Discourse for quite a while. Let me just give you one last setup. This is the Thursday night before Jesus gave His life the next day. The disciples didn't know that was going to happen. They didn't put it together until after the fact. So he was buried. Uh, three days later, he rose again, taught them for 40 days, and that's when he kind of put the pieces together and then he ascended to the Father. So in this what's called the upstairs or the upper room discourse, it's Jesus. He knows he's giving his very, very important instructions to his disciples. In that discourse, even though it's taken us weeks to go through it, he did it in an evening. 
And in that discourse, he five times gives exhortations and promises and explanations about the Holy Spirit. And they're called the five paraclete passages or the five advocate passage. Paraclete is from the Greek word that he's using here, parakletos. It means one who comes alongside to help. And some refer to it, you'll, some versions will say counselor. Others will say paraclete. Uh, the New International Version that we'll read says advocate. Trying to come up with the right word, but the Holy Spirit is our advocate. He's the one that enables. He's the one that brings us along. I'm going to read the first three that we've already covered with very little comment. Then we'll spend the rest of our time on the fourth and the fifth advocate exhortation, the advocate passages. All right, so let's go through them. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. Here is advocate passage number one. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, the reason that we know the advocate is the Spirit is because He said so. The Spirit of truth. And you're saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Spirit of truth, oh, is that the Holy Spirit or, or is that the Spirit of truth? Yes. Wait, Spirit of truth, is that Spirit of truth or the Spirit of Jesus? Yes. You tracking? All right, you got, got the mask on. I need to know you're tracking. Did you guys, you guys ever uh, notice how much you read lips? I never realized how much I read lips until people started wearing masks. But it's a great, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I haven't said that in any of the other services. But... Um, Thankfully, the Holy Spirit never wears a mask and He speaks, right? The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you, and He will be in you. Again, He's referring to Pentecost there. And He was referring to you the day that you trusted Jesus. Here's a second advocate passage in his upper room discourse, verse 26 of John 14. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So you can see some of the role being alluded to. He's the teacher. He's the one that enlightens us. He's the one that opens the eyes of our heart. Here's the third one. John 15, verse 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. And you also must testify. So he's saying the Spirit comes. He comes to help. He comes to teach. He comes to enable you and me to reflect Him to this world. Now we come to the passage for this weekend. John chapter 16, start with verse 5. And in this passage, you'll see in verse 7, there's one advocate passage. And then verse, verse 13, 14, and 15 is the fifth one. So here's 4 and 5 right here. But now I'm going to Him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good. It's for your good that I'm going away. Now he tells them why. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, notice he says when he comes, not when it comes. When he comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And here we go with the fifth of the five advocate passages. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He'll speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is, yet is to, what is yet to come. And He will glorify Me because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is Mine. That's why I said that the Spirit will receive from Me what He will make known to you. All right, go back to verse 8. Jesus says, let me tell you the role. Now, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit does not have a role in this person's life kind of from the outside. That's how we come to Christ as He comes upon us. But then once He is within us, He continues this, the, the, the role that He has in our lives. And it's a role that it, Jesus says this way. He says He'll prove the world to be in the wrong. Now, if you grew up in a religious environment, especially a real legalistic, oppressive religious environment, you read that, and this is kind of the image that we have, where he's wagging his finger. Uh-uh-uh-uh. I mean, he's coming and said, yep. And so, because in so many religious environments, shame takes center stage. Religious environments motivate people through guilt and shame. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't shame us. He convicts us. And there's a big difference between shame and conviction. Shame is something where that condemns and says, you know, you, what you, just give it up. Conviction says, I got a vision for you. Where you are right now is not where you need to be. But let me cast a vision for you. Shame shows you the problem and walks away and says, boy, I, I told him, told her. Conviction shows you the answer. Shame minimizes value in a person. Conviction emphasizes value. So the Holy Spirit comes not to convict us, but to shame us. You start going down that path, and it becomes grievous to the Spirit. Because He comes to convict, not to shame. I'm just going to let that settle. And if there's shame that I'm feeling, doesn't mean it's not painful. When the Holy Spirit convicts me, it's painful because I've, I've shown my error. But it's, it, there's hope embedded in there. There's love embedded in there. Speaking the truth with love. So how does He pull this off? What, what's it look like? Well, we go back to that text where Jesus is going to prove to the world that where we're in the wrong regarding three different areas. Bottom line, what the Holy Spirit does and this is not just one time. He does it continually. He brings me back to, to front and center of, of understanding the Gospel, of believing the Gospel, of engaging with the Gospel, of listening to the Father. It's an everyday aspect as I'm being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. But what He does is He calls my bluff. You guys know what that phrase? This past week, my wife had a birthday, and so some friends of hers and, and I it, it surprised her. And and the way we surprised her is we had to lie. I mean, we were all lying like a rug, getting her to this particular place and so forth. And afterwards, she said to me, she says, you know, you're not nearly as good of a bluffer as you think you are. What she mean by that? Where's the, the, where, what's that calling bluff? Where's it come from? A lot of you play cards. It can be poker on one end or balderdash on the other. But bluffing is trying to convince somebody that you've got a card that you don't have. 
Now, I'm not going to bluff God, and you can't bluff God, but what we do is we bluff ourselves. We tell ourselves that we've got the right answer. And the Holy Spirit comes along lovingly with conviction, not condemningly with shame. And He says, Matt, I'm going to call you bluff. You're bluffing yourself, and it's causing you and the people around you a lot of heartache. I'm going to call your bluff on three assumptions. And he gives them sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's look at them one at a time. The first area where he calls my bluff is regarding my understanding, my assumptions regarding my fulfillment. What does it mean for me as a human being to be fulfilled? Go back to the text. Look again at verse 9. It says, about sin because people do not believe in me. So he's contrasting Sin and belief. It's one or the other. When I'm sinning, I'm not believing. When I'm believing, I'm not sinning. Now there's the belief of coming to Christ, and then there's the daily believing the gospel. I'm saying, I'm not sure if it's that important. John thinks it is. 98 times in John's gospel, he uses the word believe. One of the big ones that we talk about a lot, John 20, 31. He says, I've written my gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's ongoing. By believing, coming to Christ, and then by believing on a daily basis, trusting the Holy Spirit has been given to me to enable me to be a human to the glory of God in the way that He designed me as one of His followers. But it's real clear in that passage, believing leads to life, not believing is no life. Romans 14, uh, 23 talks about whatever's not of faith is sin. That's some of what's being referred to there. If I am not believing, there's an aspect of, of sin in my path. What do you think will fulfill you? What do I think will fulfill me? I'm bluffing myself if I think I can be fulfilled without a, having an engine, and B, letting that engine lead me. Without having the Spirit, without letting the Spirit lead me on the path of life. Isaiah chapter 55 says it pretty clearly. He says, verse 2, Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Yeah, I see that, and every time I see Jim Carrey, years ago he said this. I've, I've told some of you, I'm sure. Uh, somewhere along the line. He says, you know what? Sometimes I wish, he said in an interview, that everybody could get rich and be famous and do everything that they dreamed of doing so that they would know that is not the answer. He said, it took me to get all that stuff because I thought that would do it and it didn't. Isaiah goes on to say, listen, listen to me. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. Come and eat what is good, and you'll delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that you may be impressively religious. Now, hear me, that you may live. The Holy Spirit is in every one of us as his, if we're His followers. But the degree to which we're listening to Him about what will truly fulfill us is determining our maturity, determining our Christ-likeness, determining our fulfillment. And the Holy Spirit's role in that is paramount. Here's the second. He comes to call my bluff and say, mm, Matt, what you think is going to fulfill you isn't going to. Second area he calls my bluff is regarding my view of, of how I'm going to gain God's approval. We all have assumptions 
about what it looks like for God to approve of us. Go back to the text. He says in verse 10, he says about righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father. Without righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. One of the things I did with my sons regularly, I still do. I've seen each of them at individual points a couple of times this summer, a couple of more together. And before we depart for any length of time, I do the same thing I did for them every night at bedtime, is I will lay a hand on them and I will bless them with the ironic blessing. It's what I give to you guys. It's one of the richest things one human being can say to the other. And what is it? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up the light of His countenance on you and give you shalom, give you peace. What's at the epicenter of that blessing? It's the face of God. It's the countenance of God. The approval of God. The love of God coming on you. And when I am saying that to you, I'm not saying, I didn't tell my boys, make sure you do X, Y, and Z so that the light of His countenance would come on you. No. That comes in grace. Our behavior matters, but it matters in response to the love that He lavishes on us. What Jesus is saying, He says, because of righteousness, that He would convict you regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father. What He's referring to there is this religious righteousness that Jesus despised, where people would do righteous things thinking that by doing that, God's going to like me more. And it caters to pride. Some of the most prideful people are in religious communities and churches because we think we're doing, we're being good and therefore God's loving. And Romans chapter 1 verse, verse 17 is, if you don't know it, you need to. It's at the epicenter of the Reformation. For in the gospel, a righteousness, and there's four letters that come there. What are the, it's a four-letter word. What's that four-letter word right after the word righteousness? Let's hear it. You got those masks on, so you got to speak louder. From. All right, let's read it. From the gospel of righteousness. Not, uh, come on. From. The reason I'm emphasizing that is that changed Martin Luther's life and it changed the world when he got that four letter word in English. He was looking in Latin. Here's why he says, In the gospel, Paul is writing this in the gospel. A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. When we trust Him, we are not saying, God, I've earned it, so come and bring a righteousness to me that I've earned. It's not a matter of me saying, okay, I'm going to be righteous towards you and get you to love me. It is me believing that He says, because of my work, my son's work on the cross, Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father. What do you mean by that? He says, because by that time I will have died, I will have risen again, I would have taught you for 40 days, and I will have ascended to the Father. My work will be done, and therefore the Holy Spirit will come and convict you of the religious righteousness that is of no use whatsoever other than to make you religiously proud and brew in you a hard heart. The Holy Spirit comes on and says, you will never be good enough to get God to love you. He loves you in grace right now because of what Jesus has done. And it's the Holy Spirit that says, you have the smile of God's face on you because you're in Christ. 
Your righteous acts, they matter if they're biblical, but only in response to you living like a loved man or a loved woman. My behavior doesn't make me righteous and it doesn't make him love me. And the Holy Spirit wants to lovingly convict me of that. And the third area of a wrong assumption, it's not just regarding our fulfillment and God's approval, but life's purpose. We, we, we have the wrong assumptions about what we're here for. We, we totally miss the glory of God. Notice in this passage, he's talking about the Spirit will glorify me. Go back to the text. Look at that last verse, verse 11, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now you see, judgment, <clears throat> a lot of times you think, okay, it's referring, referring to the last judgment. Well, there are plenty of times the word judgment's talking about that. This is the judgment of discernment, of wisdom. It's along the lines of John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about Sabbath and circumcision, law, behavior stuff. He said, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And what he's doing in, in John 8, he talks about this, the, the devil being the father of lies. So go back to this, this text. And in, in verse 11, he's saying regarding judgment, because the prince of this world stands condemned. This prince of this world has been put down. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit comes now that the prince of this world has been defanged, declawed, this father of lies. If you're looking for a reference, you can look it up later. It's John chapter 8, verse 44. Okay, but you can look at it now. There we go. Look at that last line at the bottom that when he lies, he speaks his native language. This is referring to the prince of this world. He's referring to Satan. He is a liar and the father of lies. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in me, he, can, he releases me from that worldly wisdom about what life's purpose is. So often we think we got this thing down and we know what will, uh, will fulfill us and what will bring God's approval and what life's purpose is. And it's the father of lies coming. But when the Holy Spirit takes up residence, John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And the Spirit speaks truth. And I don't have to have that being confident in something that's not true. <laughs> I read a... Um, portion of a study done at Cornell University several years ago. It was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology by a guy named Dr. David Dunning and an associate of his looking at incompetence versus competence in skill levels. And his skill levels maybe in, in, in leading a business or school, a, 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 a church or a company of some sort, or a skill set in terms of white collar or blue collar skills, or even hobby skills looking at, okay, this whole notion of incompetence, a couple of conclusions pretty powerful. He says, most people that are incompetent regarding a skill don't know they're incompetent. Secondly, incompetent people are usually more confident in themselves than the competent people are. In other words, we have this amazing ability to delude ourselves, and it, there's nowhere more, is that more true than in this notion of trusting uh, in our own selves regarding what life's purpose is and what we're to be about. And Jesus says, the Spirit will come and guide you into all truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, 
I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I want you to see way true in in life through the lens of this text. Regarding our fulfillment, he said, Jesus. Jesus, not sin, is the life. Regarding God's approval, Jesus, not righteous works, is the way. Regarding life's purpose, Jesus, not human wisdom, not human judgment, is the truth. Verse 13 there in this text says, I want you to understand something. He concludes it. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 8, He says, you know the truth, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. So He's saying the Spirit will lead you to the truth. He's already said the truth will set you free. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's Spirit. It's truth. It's freedom. You won't have one without the other two. You have truth without the Spirit. It does lead to freedom. It leads to religious bondage. And what's it look like? Where the Spirit of the Lord is. It's not just... This whole notion of trying to impress other people. When the Spirit takes up residence in a human being's life, and that human being says, okay, you lead me now. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's truth and there's freedom. Freedom to do exactly what I'm made to do as a human being. Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you that you made us to be free. free in grace, free in life, free in truth. Would you give us the courage to believe the gospel, to believe what you say is true instead of believe the enemy regarding our fulfillment and your approval and life's purpose. So when you say it, may we embrace it. May we believe it. And I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth and life.